Yeah, let's do some science in this segment, shall we? Pulling a few items out of this forgotten English uh, calendar, which I, I've grown fond of. On its June 24th uh, page, it took a look at this issue of the full moon, causing people to go mad, something which has been a favorite of ours on this program over the years. They noted that in February of 2009, Scientific American took a look at it and cited that a lack of evidence for concluding uh, that the moon triggered erratic activity. Uh, they felt that this lacked a real foundation. And when you know it, a review of 37 studies titled Much Ado About the Full Moon, published by the Psychological Bulletin, came to the same conclusion in 1985. And yeah, that conclusion was that it was bunk. And, and I, I noted before this program, and must do again, I guess, that I did conduct my own experiment on this in emergency rooms in the various hospitals I worked at for many, many years. And I concluded quite firmly that every time there was a busy night in an ER that coincided with a full moon, everybody took note and said, yep, that's, that's what's going on. But when we had quiet emergency rooms during the times of full moon, nobody paid any attention. And yes, I'm here to tell you, it was random. Although I tell people that, and sometimes they don't believe me when there's a full moon. Kidding. Not to say the makers of these calendars uh, can't make mistakes. I think they made one in their June 26th issue when they seemed to mix up the terms inoculation and vaccination, which makes me want to take down from the shelves one of my favorite books. It really is one of my most favorite books, and it really is one of my most favorite books in my library. Michael Hart's The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. It's a giant exercise in thought that looks back over the course of human history and tries to say what lives changed that course. And to be ranked highly, Hart decided that you had to have been someone that did something that people were not about to do anyway. He would not uh, regard the work of uh, Watson and Crick very highly because he reasoned that someone else is going to figure out the structure of DNA really soon. And in fact, as is clear in the double helix, Watson and Crick barely beat out Linus Pauling in that discovery. With all the talk of COVID and vaccinations and anti-vaccinations, I think it would behoove us to read the entry for Edward Jenner, who Michael Hart ranked 70th on the list. Let me, let me excerpt from it. The English physician, Edward Jenner, was the man who developed and popularized the technique of vaccination as a preventative measure against the dreaded disease of smallpox. Today, when, thanks to Jenner's smallpox, has been wiped off the face of the earth, we tend to forget just how frightful were the casualties it caused in early centuries. Smallpox was so contagious that a substantial majority of the people living in Europe caught the disease sometime during their lives. It was so virulent that at least 10 to 20% of those who contracted it died. Of those who survived, another 10 to 15% were disfigured by pockmarks. Smallpox was not confined to Europe, of course, but raged throughout North America, India, China, and many other parts of the world. Everywhere, children were the most frequent victims. Noted Hart, for many years, attempts had been made to find a reliable means of preventing smallpox. It had been known for a very long time that a person who survived an attack was thereafter immune and would not catch the disease a second time. In the Orient, this observation had led to the practice of inoculating healthy people with material taken from someone who had a mild case of smallpox. This was done in the hope 
that a person so inoculated would himself contract only a mild case and after recovering would be immune. This practice was introduced into England in the early 18th century by Lady Mary Wortley Montague, and it had become fairly common a good many years before Jenner. Jenner himself, in fact, had been inoculated with smallpox when he was eight. This ingenious preventative measure had a grave drawback, however. A fair number of people so inoculated developed not a minor attack, but a virulent attack which left them badly pockmarked. In fact, roughly 2% of the time, inoculation itself resulted in fatal results. Clearly, a superior method of prevention was needed. Keep in mind, that's inoculating, taking somebody else's smallpox and passing it to you. Edward Jenner was born in 1749 in the small town of Berkeley in Gloucester, England. 1792, he received a medical degree from St. Andrews University. In his mid-40s, he was well-established as a physician and surgeon. Jenner was familiar with the belief, which was common among dairymaids and farmers in his region, that people who contracted cowpox, a minor disease of cattle, which can, however, be transmitted to humans, never got smallpox afterwards. Cowpox itself is not dangerous to humans, though its symptoms somewhat resemble those of an extremely mild attack of smallpox. Jenner realized that if the farmer's belief was correct, then inoculating people with cowpox, not smallpox, would provide a safe method of immunizing them against the deadly disease. He investigated it carefully and by 1796 became convinced that that belief was correct. He therefore decided to test it directly. In a move that today would never pass an ethics panel, Jenner inoculated James Phillips in May of that year, he was an eight-year-old boy, with matter taken from a cowpox pustule on a dairymaid's hand. As expected, the boy developed cowpox but soon recovered. Here's the part that really wouldn't pass muster. Several weeks later, Jenner inoculated Phillips with smallpox. As he had hoped, the child developed no signs of the disease. After some further investigation, Jenner set forth his results in a short book, An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variola Vaccinia, which he published privately in 1798. It was that book which was primarily responsible for the rapid adoption of the practice of vaccination. Jenner subsequently wrote five other articles concerning vaccination and for years devoted much of his time to disseminating knowledge of his technique and working for its adoption. The practice of vaccination spread rapidly in England and was soon made compulsory to the British Army and Navy. Eventually, it was adopted throughout most of the world. Jenner freely offered this technique to the world and made no attempt to profit from it, something that did not later inspire Donald Rumsfeld. In 1802, however, the British Parliament, in gratitude, granted him an award of £10,000. A few years later, Parliament granted him an additional £20,000. He became world famous, and many honors and medals were bestowed upon him. Noted Michael Hart, as we've seen, Jenner did not originate the idea that an attack of cowpox would confer immunity against smallpox. He heard it from others. It even appears, in fact, that a few persons had deliberately been vaccinated with cowpox before Jenner came along. But although Jenner was not a strikingly original scientist, There are few men who have done as much to benefit mankind. By his investigations, his experiments, and his writings, he transformed a folk belief, which the medical profession had never taken seriously, into a standard practice which has saved countless millions of lives. Although Jenner's technique 
could only be applied to the prevention of a single disease. That disease was a major one. He richly deserves the honors which his own and all subsequent generations have accorded him. Anyway, we, we best not spend a great deal of time on this, but, but inoculation is a broader term than vaccination. They're closely related. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. Inoculation has a broader meaning, but it can be synonymous to vaccination. This came, this came about because they were inoculating people in Turkey in the 1700s. The Turks were inoculating people with smallpox, as we just mentioned, and hoping for the best in the 1700s. Lady Mary Wortley Montague brought it to England. Well, at least she pushed for it. She advocated for inoculating people. But it had this unacceptably high death rate. Edward Jenner stumbles upon using cowpox to vaccinate you against smallpox by using vaccinia, cowpox. Louis Pasteur later broadens the term when he develops a... uh, an inoculum, a vaccination, he decides to call it, for rabies. You know, I think I will see if I can locate the, a book that I, I know that I own, I just don't know where it is right now, that explains this better than I think I've just done. But we'll take one more whack at it. If an inoculation is done to boost immunity, it is considered an immunization, and one way of doing that is through vaccination. And that's when inoculation means vaccination because both inoculation and vaccination can be considered as artificial methods of inducing immunity. And no, when people tell you that vaccinations are injecting poisons into the body, you can tell them uh, that, is, that is incorrect. We'll probably be drawn back into this controversy before we know it. I did note that I got a call in the past week from uh, the leading anti-vaxxer that I know, He's been telling everybody who will listen that vaccines are toxins, they're poisons, you should never take a vaccination. And I think non-coincidentally, he uh, got COVID last week. And no, it's not a deadly case. He's doing pretty well. He'll probably come out of it fine. But I think I'm pretty sure that's not because, as he assures me, that he's taking Invermectin and hydroxychloroquine. I I tried to point out to him, that didn't seem to protect you, did it? But he's convinced it's helping him get better quicker. Yeah. Could be, but maybe not. All right, and um, as if I haven't gotten myself in enough trouble, I'm I'm looking at an article that's really hard to explain, but I think it's really interesting, so I'm going to take a whack at it. The May 29th issue of New Scientist had a headline, How Evolution Makes New Organs? And that's a good question. Noted the piece by Claire Ainsworth, A fundamental challenge that multicellular animals face is how to get different cell types to work together so that a higher level function, such as that of an organ, emerges from their interactions. They're quoting a Joe Parker at the California Institute of Technology. But it's a fact, biologists know relatively little about how this happens. Many organs that are common across animal groups are complex and evolutionarily ancient, making it hard to unpick their origins. But... Notes the piece, the defense glands of a family of insects known as rove beetles are much simpler and are only about 100 million years old, which is much younger than ancient cell types, such as those found for body fat or compound eyes that all insects possess. One species, the greenhouse rove beetle, has a pair of glands in its abdomen. It's composed of only two cell types that secrete a A, solid toxin dissolved in B, an oily fluid. 
If attacked by a predator, like an ant, the beetle whips its flexible abdomen around and smacks a dab of this cocktail in the ant's face. The toxin triggers the ant's pain receptors, forcing it to retreat. To uncover the evolutionary roots of this defense mechanism, the Caltech team used a technique called single-cell RNA sequencing to analyze the gene activity in the two different cell types. This showed that one cell type produced the solvent while the other made the toxin. By comparing the gene activity to other body cells, they discovered that the solvent cells had adapted existing suites of genes that govern cells elsewhere in the beetle's body, those that make tissues in its equivalent of the liver and fat. This remodeling allowed the new cell type to make oily solvent compounds. The toxin cells, meanwhile, got repurposed from existing metabolic genes, along with those involved in coloring and hardening the beetle's external skin, its cuticle. These are the pre-existing logics that the beetle had reused, said Joe Parker. Parker believes the solvent cells evolved first, perhaps providing oily lubricant for the beetle's segments. This created a niche for toxin cells to evolve, enabling a new function to emerge. Natural selection began acting on the two cell types as a unit, further refining the contributions of each, he says. I think it's a nice way to phrase how organs evolve by cells creating niches for each other and in this way allowing for the evolution of functions that otherwise wouldn't arise because they only make sense in certain contexts. All right, I hope that clears things up. Seriously, interesting topic, but, but, but a little complex. Let, let's find something simpler, shall we? How about this one? The oldest animal fossils ever discovered are uh, apparently in the news. Article in New Scientist by Michael Marshall notes that 890 million year old rocks contain the remnants of ancient sponges, or so the reasoning goes. If you're an evolutionary biologist, this is big news. This does push back the origin of animals 350 million years. For years, the earliest known animal fossils were from the Cambrian period, which began 541 million years ago. However, in recent years, some fossils from the earlier Ediacaran period, which is from 635 to 541 million years ago, have been identified as animals. There are also 660 million year old chemical traces that may be from sponges. But Elizabeth Turner at the Laurentian University in Sudbury, Canada, took a look at these Canadian rocks. These are from Northwest Canada and contain the preserved remains of reefs from 890 million years ago. These reefs weren't made by corals as these did not yet exist. Instead, they were made by photosynthetic bacteria living in shallow seas. The reefs, known as stromatolites, were many kilometers across and rose to heights of hundreds of meters above the sea floor. Within these rocks, Turner found the preserved remains of networks of fibers which branched and joined up in a complex mesh. These are the remains of sponges, she argues, but not a normal fossil. The bodies of modern sponges contain a mesh made of protein called spongin, which forms a soft skeleton. Turner's work suggests that when ancient sponges died, their soft tissues became mineralized, but the tough spongin didn't. Eventually, though, it decayed, leaving hollow tubes within the rock that later filled with calcite crystals. These networks of calcite are what Turner then found, and the way they branched looked just like spongin. Peace notes that if sponges existed 890 million years ago, then the origin of animals must have occurred much earlier than previous fossils have suggested. 
There are some problems in this. It's known that the Earth had very little oxygen in the air until levels rose between 800 and 541 million years ago. If these fossils uh, are correctly being interpreted, it means that uh, animals back then could apparently survive with much less oxygen. We will continue to follow the story as developments break. Now, some years back on this program, we addressed the interesting geological fact that as the last ice age was coming to a close about 12,000 years ago and sea levels began to abruptly rise across the Earth, that at some point the level of the Mediterranean worked its way up the, the Dardanelles and through the Bosporus and up to what was the edge of a great freshwater lake north of today's Turkey. As the Mediterranean began spilling over a rock formation in the Bosporus, uh, well, suddenly the prototype Black Sea, which was then more properly, I guess you'd call the Black Lake, was being fed by salt water as well as the freshwater rivers around it. This resulted in two distinct layers of water, an oxygenated upper level with less salt and a lower saltwater level without oxygen. Turns out that the oxygen level drops to zero below 150 meters. This is ideal for the preservation of organic materials. In most seawater, wood and rope are among the first things to decay. But the unusual water chemistry of the Black Sea dramatically slows rates of disintegration. Many of the shipwrecks that were being investigated by the Center for Maritime Archaeology at the University of Southampton were indeed below that 150-meter level, and some are as deep as 2,200 meters below the surface. The wood of some ships is so well-preserved that chisel and tool marks are still visible on individual planks. Rigging materials, coils of rope, tills, rudders, and even carved wooden decorative elements have survived the centuries largely intact. Said Principal Investigator John Adams, nobody has seen anything quite like this before. While historical texts and illustrations give some information about the appearances and construction methods of merchant ships in different periods, Adams hopes the extraordinary preservation of these wrecks will allow archaeologists to independently verify those historical records. The earliest of the 41 wrecks appears to be from the late 800s, when the Byzantine Empire controlled much of the region. There are also many sunken Ottoman ships from the 16th through 18th centuries, several 19th century ships, and a medieval Italian vessel that likely dates to the 14th century. Adams said, We know that the Italians were quite prominent in the Black Sea in medieval trade, but to see a vessel of a type that might have been recognized by Marco Polo is quite astonishing. And I'm sure some interesting pictures and uh, archaeological data is going to come out of this. And anyway, a lot of people are uh, excited about this large comet, the largest discovered comet, which is currently somewhere out near Neptune. Scientific American is reporting that when it gets as close as it's going to get to the sun, which will be only as close as Saturn, and that'll be in the year 2031, that it will shine brighter and brighter in the night sky as the ice melts to the point where anyone with a telescope should be able to spot it. Well... To that, I would say uh, maybe anybody with a monster-sized telescope will be able to spot it. How bright it's going to get remains really unclear, and Saturn is a billion miles out there, and something that's, uh, you know, 60 by 120 miles across, when you're looking at it from a billion miles away, well, it, it better get really active. And you know, when you're out where Saturn is, 10 times as far away from the sun as the Earth is, you're only dealing with one one hundredth the sunlight energy that we receive here on the home planet. 
So this thing may disappoint a few folks. Just, just, just want to get that out there now. Just don't, don't get your hopes up too high. And just so you know, we didn't. Uh, <laughs> it turns out that you don't have to be a, um, a business-oriented right-wing politician here in America to be a uh, climate change denier. What do you know? You can be a member of the Chinese Communist Party. China is currently experiencing a rash of unusual flooding events, much as, you know, Europe has been, and America, to the contrary, has been having temperatures that are, you know, in the stratosphere. But uh, The Economist notes that alongside technical talk about the storm's rarity, which has been stressed by the Chinese government, officials are also stressing how it fits into China's long history of summer floods, nodding to the centuries-old tradition that successful flood control is a mark of virtuous rule. Communist Party newspapers have praised important instructions on disaster prevention and relief issued by the Supreme Leader, President Xi Jinping. Television has filled with images of sol- soldiers shoring up dikes, people on being rescued in small boats, and party members organizing patriotic volunteers. At least in the main party and government-run news outlets, one possible cause of the rains has been hardly discussed. Climate change. All summer, extreme weather has sparked loud public debate from Canada to Germany to Japan about whether a climate emergency has begun. Not in China. The Chinese are being told it was a a once-in-a-thousand-year rainstorm, and they're buying it. Of course, people were saying that what took place in Canada in July was a a once-in-a-thousand-year temperature event. i got a feeling these once-in-a-thousand-year events are going to happen a lot more frequently. Let's see if we can close with some good news. It turns out that in the art market, modern techniques are enabling, well, what would you call them? Art collectors, museum managers, art dealers, probably not in this case art dealers, maybe more properly those who would like to collect art. New techniques are revealing forgeries. I was stunned to read that Switzerland's Fine Art Expert Institute announced in 2018 that about half of the artworks on the market are now forged. This is, of course, a nefarious activity that has gone on for centuries. Apparently, Amadeo Modigliani is uh, among the most often copied and fraudulently sold uh, uh, works in the art world. His paintings often sell for millions of dollars at auction today, and because of the, the style in which they're executed, they've often attracted notice and the talents of copyists and unscrupulous art dealers. Well, at any rate... I guess telling a fake from a real is one tough piece of business. But these days, they're going to use photography at ultra-high resolution. They're going to use uh, the synchrotron, apparently a building-sized machine that subjects artifacts to tiny samples of super-powerful beams, which sounds frightening. Uh, You can use X-ray fluorescence. You can use uh, multi-spectral imaging. And, of course, notes The Economist, information gleaned from all these tools could be fused to create many gigabytes of data, and an up-and-coming method uses a neural network, a form of artificial intelligence that mimics the structure of the human brain, of course, to identify common features in the painter's known works, especially brush strokes. Anyway, it's become quite an issue. Sotheby's, the London-based auction house, bought an American laboratory in 2016. Its rival Christie's uses lots of private scientific services. I, th- I, think, I think people fear a big-time lawsuit by a collector who is overspent. Chris Bart, Mr. Mullen, does want to clarify, he, he does dabble in art, that his recent work, Whistler's Stepmother, 
was definitely not something he intended to see passed off as something by James McNeil Whistler. In closing, we note that Radio Parallax has no knowledge of whether the painter Whistler actually was a Whistler. But believe you me, that does it for today's program, which was produced by James McNeil McMillan. This is Douglas Everett urging you to turn in same bat time, same bat channel for what we expect to be a spirited talk with the boy wonder, actor Burt Ward. We'll see you then. <laughs>